Welcome back to Come Follow Me with Bear, Faithful Answers to New Testament Questions. My name is Jennifer Roach, and I'm in yet another new location. Um, tiny little uh, technical difficulty with our new studio, so I'm recording from home today, which means my cats are afoot, and perhaps they will make an appearance. We will see. Um, if this is your first time joining us, we are going through the Come Follow Me material. And as we go along, addressing kind of some of the common questions that evangelicals might have about our faith, sometimes even questions we have about their faith, um, not trying to fuel a debate, not trying to like, here's how you win the argument, um, just trying to help you better understand your friends and family so that you might be able to have a, a better conversation with them around these things and maybe even share a little bit of the goodness from our faith with them. So before I get started, I do want to remind you this very cool event coming up. Every year, FAIR hosts the most fantastic three-day conference, and you should think about attending. I will be there. I would be happy to meet you. I am speaking on one of those days. I don't know. I, I don't think the schedule is finalized yet, so I don't know which day, but I'll be there all three days. Um, I want to tell you about one of the other talks, not mine, that is going to happen there that I am super excited about, Dr. Jeanette Erickson. Um, Sister Erickson, she has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, U.S. News and World Report, Slate Magazine, many more. She is a, a social science researcher, and she digs into all kinds of research that affect family life. Um, and she will be bringing her expertise to talk about the new uh, For the Strength of Youth book. I'm really looking forward to hearing from her. She's brilliant. Um, even if you're beyond the stage of having young people in your home, um, she is absolutely worth listening to and you would learn some things. So back to our work, our scripture this week comes from Matthew 19.9 and we get from Jesus speaking here. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be by fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. We are not talking about divorce or adultery in this episode. You had your hopes up. I'm sorry. I am brave, but I am not that brave. What we are going to do instead is look at the ways that evangelicals and Latter-day Saints handle really difficult texts in scripture. Like most topics, this is easier to understand with some historical background. So like always, that's where we start. Um, there has never been a time in history when people of faith have not had to grapple with difficult scriptures. Like th This is this is what we do, right? We grapple with the hard scriptures. Sometimes those difficulties come because we don't understand something about the context or the language or the, the passage, but sometimes they come because the passage is just hard or painful. And all along, all throughout history, everyone of faith has had to figure out what to do with this. Um, so we're going to go all the way back to the New Testament times and the few few hundred years um, after that, and think about the scribes who were hand copying 
manuscripts of the New Testament. So it's pretty it's pretty well known, at least in academic circles. There's a lot that happens in this copying process. Um, they're hand copying the manuscripts, and sometimes, sometimes they would change what they were copying in a couple of different directions. Sometimes they did it to make the verses easier. So if we if we look at a you know a couple of examples of this, all of these changes what they're they're called textual variants, um, and a variant is just this manuscript says one thing, this manuscript says something different. What what do we what do we do about that? In an ideal world, we would have access to the original copies of the New Testament, the very parchment that Paul was writing on. We don't have anything close to that. There are no originals in existence that anyone knows of of the Bible. In this way, interestingly enough, the, the Book of Mormon and the Bible are in the same boat here. They, there are no originals to compare to. We have to look at the transmission process and how the things are understood because we can't go back and we don't have gold plates, can't compare to that. We don't have originals of the Bible, can't compare to that. Um, so they're, they're really in the same boat there. Um, we don't have originals. We do have lots of copies, copies of copies of copies of copies. <laughs> and those copies vary in quality. Um, so there's a branch of study called textual criticism. And textual criticism is not about criticizing what the scripture has to say. It's kind of a misnomer in that way. Textual criticism is the study of figuring out what the most likely original word was in a text. So New Testament, there's about 5,500 handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament, and they range in date from about 150 years after Christ all the way up to about the year 1550. At that point, the printing press was well enough established that nobody was interested in handwriting copies anymore. Of those 5,500 manuscripts, some are very tiny, smaller than a business card. Some just contain one verse. Some just contain some words from a verse. It's not till around 3D or 350 AD that we get the first complete Bible manuscript. Um, it has a name, it's called the Codex Sciaticus. You can go see it, it's on display at the British Museum in London. Uh, I went and saw it and had to be dragged away from it because um, they were gonna close the museum, so they kicked me out. Um, but before the Sciaticus, we have about a hundred or so fragments of varying length. And after it, we still get fragments. But as time goes on, they start to become bigger and longer, and we start to get more and more complete Bibles. So every manuscript is numbered, and some of them are named. Codex Sciaticus is named. Not all of them are important enough to be named, but they're all numbered, and they're all placed in a category one through five. Category one is the best. 
You want if you're a, if you're a manuscript, you want to be a category one manuscript. How do you get in that category? It's not the most complete ones. It's the oldest ones. So in category five, which is the worst category, the lowest quality category, you have lots of complete manuscripts. But a manuscript that was copied in 1500 has had 1500 years to pick up some textual variants. So it's not as reliable as the category one stuff, even though the category one stuff is often just tiny fragments. And you might be saying, well, so what? <laughs> what do we do with this information in our conversation about how to handle difficult texts? If I was fancy and I knew how to put graphics in videos, just pretend, I would show you a copy of um, it's Papyrus 28, right? So some of the manuscripts are on Papyrus. This one's called Papyrus 28. It's, it's about three by two. So it, that's actually considered medium size for its time and category. And it's from John 6. And it's the story of the loaves and fishes. It, it used to be housed at the university in Berkeley. It got sold to a private collector about 10 years ago. So you can't, I don't think you can go see it. But there are two very interesting things about Papyrus 28. In that small, tiny manuscript, three inches by two inches, there are five variations or five unique differences between it and other similar manuscripts. Now five is a lot <laughs> in, a, in a three by two, but it's not unheard of. Of those 5,500 manuscripts, no two are identical. And so, so we have lots of, of variation. Most of those differences are grammar and punctuation and, and nobody cares. And some of the differences are more significant. The other, the, here's the other interesting piece about Papyrus 28. It looks, you can, you can look it up on Google if you want to, you'll see what I'm talking about. It looks like someone took an X-Acto knife and deliberately cut out one word. Just, there's this blank triangle that's not, it's not ripped, it's not torn. It's a very deliberate square cut. Um, do you ever cut, like back in the day, you ever cut a person out of a picture as if they didn't exist, right? So that's what someone along the way did to Papyrus 28. The word that is cut out means those who were sitting down, right? Because the people there, they're listening to Jesus and um, the boy has five loaves and fishes and he's going to pass them out. And um, the text says like there's people sitting down and Jesus says pass the stuff out to the people sitting down well somebody along the way didn't like that in papyrus 28 and cut it out it's an early example but it is one example of how someone dealt with a word in a text that they didn't like or didn't agree with they just cut it out in theory I guess you could go into your scriptures and start cutting out passages I don't recommend it there are much better ways to deal with difficult texts. So another example of how the scribes deal with difficult passages is that they simplify them. So the, the scribes who are doing this, it's over the course of about 1500 years, many centuries, 
but there are patterns to their work, right? So a, a scribe in the fourth century has some patterns that are similar to a scribe in the 11th century. And one of those patterns is the scribes tended to add words to the text to explain or clarify what they were copying. But they were trying to be helpful to the reader in doing this. <laughs> but for modern purposes, what they actually are doing is giving us kind of a general rule to follow that says, the shorter reading is probably closer to the original. Meaning if you've got five manuscripts and, and four of them mostly agree, but one of them's got a whole bunch of extra words added in, odd one out, right? Why are all those extra words in this and not in any other uh, manuscript? So that, that that's one of the patterns that we see from them. The, short, the shorter reading is probably closer to the original. Um, if you have two texts that the scribe is aware of, and he, he sees the differences, right? He sometimes tries to, they call it harmonize the text. It's like sort of smooth it out, either in the, the language and the grammar, but more often we mean this in the difficulty of it. So sometimes like Jesus says some really hard things and sometimes the scribes soften those a little bit. Um, sometimes they sometimes they make them harder sometimes they make them more rigorous but but a lot of times they're softening them in which case the harder reading is probably closer to the original so this is a slightly more sophisticated version of editing than just cutting out the word out of the page um these are deliberate scribal changes they thought they were doing the right thing it turns out they weren't so that's how that's how difficult passages were dealt with during the during the scribe era from from about 8150 to, to 1550. Fast forward all the way today, and there are some modern ways of dealing with difficult passages. And it it's interesting because evangelicals and Latter-day Saints approach some of these the same and some of them kind of differently. So Mostly in the evangelical world, you get two answers on how to handle difficult passages. And there's an answer you get from the scholars, and there's an answer you get from the people in the pews. Um, first, there are, there are many, 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 many very good evangelical scholars who are doing very good work offering their best to help people know what to do with hard passages. Top of that heap, in my opinion, my favorite, is Dr. Phyllis Tribble. Um, her kind of landmark book is called Texts of Terror. And in it, she takes four of the most disturbing passages from the Old Testament. Um, Tamar, Hagar, the daughter of Jephthah, and the unnamed woman whose husband is a priest. He basically he does a human sacrifice on her, basically. They're terrible stories. You do not find these stories in children's picture Bibles, right? 
Dr. Tribble, she goes through them one by one and very carefully helps the reader understand what is going on beyond the sadness, beyond the violence. Those two things, the sadness and the violence are so shocking, especially to our modern ears that sometimes we just get lost. I don't know what to do with this passage. And, and she really does a great job of just a careful, close reading of the text, bringing in all the contextualization to figure out what in the world is happening here. There are many, many evangelical scholars doing that, but it's not what the people in the pews are doing. They're doing something actually that's almost quite opposite. Most of the time, the people in the pews are avoiding the hard passages. In their minds, at least, they swap out a hard passage for a broader kind of 30,000 foot um, all-encompassing passage that's easier to listen to. Something like, um, well, I don't know what Jesus was really saying about divorce here, but I do know he said we're not supposed to judge, so I'm just going to let God sort them out. Right, that's that's like a super evangelical thing to say. It's not that they don't have scholars putting in the hard work on the text, they do. They just prefer practical answers that let people get on with life. They're not, the, the evangelical in the pew is not super interested in fancy academic philosophical answers. They're very practical down to earth people. Um, one of the, the, values in the evangelical church. I want to be careful saying this because I know we have some evangelical friends listening. Um, I didn't come up with this. People within the evangelical camp came up with this, but one of the values is anti-intellectualism. It, it comes across as a person trying to get out of the scripture what they need for life and to move on. In 94, Four, maybe 95, an evangelical scholar um, named Mark Knoll um, writes a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And it turns out the scandal is that there isn't much of one. Now, things have gotten better for them since then on the academic level. In um, 2014, I think, Christianity Today said that Knoll's book did more to change the trajectory of evangelicalism than any other book that had been published in decades. So at least the, the academy in the evangelical world took him seriously. But the anti-intellectualism in the pews kind of still remains. There've been a number of authors and speakers who've tried to address that over the years. I, I don't think any of them have gotten much traffic. Um, so how do Latter-day Saints manage difficult texts? We don't we don't get off scot-free here either. Um, a good test case for this, in, in my way of thinking, is Doctrine and Covenants 132. This is a hard passage. It's a long passage. It requires a lot of historical context. It's got some difficult things in it that you can pull out of that context and make them mean some crazy things. So... Like, how do we see people handling a passage like that? For many people, a path that makes sense is 
um, if you're familiar with the, the group Scripture Central, they used to be called Book of Mormon Central. They are fantastic. Many of my friends are there and working on their stuff, and I'm a huge fan of them. Um, they don't shy away from a passage or make excuses about it. They're trying to help listeners contextualize it in history and language and culture, and they're trying to kind of address it from about 15 different angles. If you go look on their website, you find like 25 videos on, on 132 addressing it from, from various angles. They're taking top level scholarship and trying to make it accessible to a regular person. Some of those are bite-sized little videos. Others are 90 minutes long. Um, if you have sat in Sunday school ever since the Come Follow Me <laughs> curriculum was invented, you have probably heard people quote, a Book of Mormon Central podcast, Taylor and Tyler are massively, massively popular, right? And, and they have lots of other contributors too. I, I see you, Casey Griffins, like, like they, they got a lot of good people there, not just those two. Um, it, the idea that we can understand a passage from lots of different perspectives and kind of gain some, some truth on it, that's what they're doing. If you go to the FAIR website, some of you I know, um, because I've gotten emails from you, you had no idea what FAIR was. You, For whatever reason, somehow you found my videos and then got introduced to FAIR. FAIR actually stands for Faithful Answers and Informed Responses. You go to our website, you will see some, it's similar work to what Book of Mormon Central is doing, or Scripture Central is doing. It's just got a little bit different focus. If you have a specific difficulty or question about a passage, chances are excellent that one of the fair scholars has already written an awful lot to address this. And, and, and not just with scripture passages, but with issues from church history, um, even current events that are uh, in the church or kind of church ad adjacent. Bear just put up a brand new page um, that can help you understand all the issues in the Daybell trial, for example. Like they were sort of Latter-day Saint adjacent. And so if you're following that news story, you're probably like, what in the world? How did they get this? Go to that page on the FAIR website. People who are smarter than I am will explain it to you. Um, they also have, if you don't know about this, um, my girl, Sarah Allen, she is extraordinary. Um, she wrote a 69 part response to the CES letter. If you don't know what the CES letter is, it's petulant garbage. You don't need to worry about it. But if you do know what it is, Sarah Allen goes point by point by point and addresses every single thing in there. Um, just extraordinary research. It, all of the all of the scholars at Fair, what they're really trying to do is say, like, let's look at the facts. Let's look at what's actually going on here without being afraid, without trying to hide anything. Let's look at the actual documents and, and figure it out. Um, so that's sort of how the the scholars or at least the scholarship in the in the Latter-day Saint world is getting made available to, I would say, regular people. I think the phrase is educated non-specialists, people who can kind of, they're interested, they want to follow along, but um, scripture studies, language studies, stuff like that isn't, isn't their main deal. So how about Latter-day Saints in the pews? 
this is this is just my experience, but it is my experience. And I'm going to tell you something hard. One of the things that Latter-day Saints do when it comes to a difficult passage in the Bible, especially, is they immediately jump to, well, clearly, this is not translated correctly. It, we, have, we have this really nice out right, in our Articles of Faith that teaches us not everything in the Bible was translated correctly. Um, but if that's the first thing you're jumping to on a difficult Bible passage, it's that's lazy. Not because it's not ever true. We we all share the belief that the Bible has mistranslations. It's lazy when it's the first solution you jump to when you come across a difficult passage. It there's no list of like these are the passages translated incorrectly. Though you know from the beginning of this video, the science of figuring out what the New Testament actually originally said is pretty difficult. Um, a better approach is that when you come across a passage that you don't know what to do with, don't immediately jump to mistranslation. Do some research. Go to the FAIR website. Go to Scripture Central website. Do some reading about the passage. Um, tons of that stuff is incredibly accessible to you. You want to geek out even more? Go to the BYU Studies page. Look up the academic work on that path. On that passage. You can go to the, the BYU Scripture Citation Index. We, I talked about this one a little bit in our last video. If you go there, you can search by passage and you can see a list of every single time that passage got addressed in General Conference all the way back to 1830. You, you want to know what the authorities of our church have said about a passage? It will list every single one of them out. My point is that there are tools for you to use to help you study better. Sometimes what Latter-day Saints say is, 100% of what I need is the Spirit and nothing else. And if you don't have the Spirit, you're not even getting off the ground in your studies. But without taking in some information that other people know that you might not know, you are not given the spirit very much to work with. Better questions produce better answers. The spirit is there and longing to help you find answers. But the spirit is not going to help you make a connection between two things if you've never done the work to read either one of them, right? It's not, it's not magic. It doesn't work that way. You have to, you know, put some stuff in your brain <laughs> in order to produce questions that the spirit can help you answer. On a more positive note, the other way that I have seen Latter-day Saints manage really difficult passages is with the kind of faithfulness that says, like, look, I don't understand what's happening here. Dark, DNC 132 is a great example, but I'm willing to let it ride for a while and see if I can find a way to think about this that's helpful. It's sort of this, this faithful pause that allows something to just be what it is, and you don't have to understand it completely, and that's okay. One of the greatest gifts in our church, in my opinion, 
is the idea that ongoing revelation exists and it doesn't only exist for the the developmental span of the, the life of the church it exists for the development of a person you're supposed to be learning new things you're supposed to be um smarter today than you were 10 years ago right it you don't have to have everything figured out today eternity is long we believe that you take everything in your intelligence with you into eternity and you have all of eternity to continue to learn and to grow. That is not a perspective that very many other churches have. Um, and it does give us this very beautiful, faithful pause to rest in. It's not jumping to the judgment of mistranslation, but it's also not obsessing about every single thing that you don't have figured out yet. Because if you're at all like me, tons of stuff you don't have figured out yet. And there is only so much time in a day or in a year or in a lifetime to get them figured out. And that's okay. Ah, I hope this was helpful to you. The issue of difficult scriptures has been with people of faith for as long as scriptures have existed. Uh, I hope our discussion has helped you think about how you handle difficult passages it could be a really fun conversation with your evangelical friend or family member to ask them how they've been trained or taught to think about really difficult passages. What do they do? Um, I, I bet it would be a fun conversation for you. Join me next time and we will take on a new topic.